Good morning. Everybody good? Everybody ready for Christmas? No, yes, that's me too. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Uh, listen, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in those to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about Christmas and the idea and the concept behind Christmas of the arrival of Jesus, obviously the birth of Jesus, and in that, that hope is here because of Jesus' arrival. And I hope that over the course of these next three weeks that if you came, if you ever find yourself in a place during the Christmas season where you find yourself in need of just a little bit more hope, I pray that this series will help you find it. And if not, just take some good notes because you may need it one day, okay? Uh, Let me pray, and we're going to jump in. God, I want to say thank you so much for your love and your grace. God, I thank you for this time of year that we get to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. God, the fulfillment of so much prophecy from the Old Testament. And God, I'm just thankful uh, that in in this Christmas season and the busyness of it all, God, we can be reminded of uh, what Christmas is really all about. And it's about the arrival of Jesus again, that in him hope comes and hope is here. And so, Lord, help us, if we're in need of hope, find a little bit of hope today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> all right, so we are less than, uh, today we're less than two weeks away from Christmas. Is, how's that sit with y'all? Y'all good with that? I mean, or are y'all freaking out right now because you're thinking of all the shopping that you still have to do and all the, the stuff you got to get repair, prepared? Is there anybody who still hasn't put up a Christmas tree? Okay, all right, that's all right, that's, that's okay, that's good, that's good. Um, how many of you are done Christmas shopping? Anybody done Christmas shopping? Very good, all right. That was easy because I wasn't buying anybody anything anyway. Um, how, many, how many of you are freaked out by the fact that you've got less than two weeks to do all your Christmas shopping. Is there anybody in that category? There's a few. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's all right. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, well, let me say this. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to spend a whole lot of time with a whole lot of family. If That's the way my family is. Uh, I'm sure it is that way for a lot of you that as uh, we come upon Christmas, what we do is we travel or they travel and people show up. Um, one of my one of my favorite scenes is that in that, the Christmas vacation. You remember the the doorbell rings and then it like goes slow mo and it goes dong dong and then they show up and like all the families at the door and it just gets chaotic, right? And that's what uh, that's what Christmas is uh, for a lot of us. We go running around and doing all this stuff. Well, last weekend I just want to share with you. I last weekend I had the opportunity to share a, uh, and spend a lot of time with family that. I don't get to spend a lot of time with. I have family that lives on the, the West Coast. And as, um, as my, we were celebrating my mother's uh, uh, you know, life, we had family flying from Arizona. We had family flying from Texas. And then we all went to Florida and met up with our family down there. And we celebrated my mom's life. And we had the opportunity to do something that we, I can't even remember the last time that we had that many of our family together. But we had the opportunity to sit down and have some conversations. And we had the opportunity to look through old photo albums. Do y'all, y'all do that when you get together with family? And so we get together and we're looking at all these old uh, photos and photo albums and you know, a lot of our time together was spent doing that. And then uh, last Sunday, after we finished church here, my aunt was still here. And uh, we went and introduced my aunt to my dad. For those of you who don't know my story, didn't get to meet my dad uh, when, up, up until just a few years ago, 2015. Met my dad for the first time. And so therefore, my mom's sister had never met him. And so we went over and, he, you know, she got to meet that side of the family. And then they started talking. 
Now, my mom's family grew up in Alma, Georgia. My mom lived there until she was probably, um, I think, in her early teens. And then they moved to Florida, which is how I ended up in Florida. And as they began to talk, my dad and my, my, my aunt, as they began to talk and have conversations, they started talking about people. And they, suddenly they just like know some of the same people. And it's like, that is so wild that um, I didn't meet my dad till three years ago. And then my, this is my, the first time my aunts meet my dad. And then as, as they have conversations, they begin to know some of the same people. It, it was really, really crazy uh, to talk about all those things. And so um, as, as again, as they talked, we, we, I enjoyed finding out things about my family that I didn't know before. Any of y'all like to do that? Like, did, how many of y'all have the, the person in your family that's the church, or is, is like the family historian? Like, there's that one person in your family, they know everybody, and they could tell you, like, you know, 20 generations ago when they got off the Mayflower, they could tell you, you know, what's, you know, what, what level they were on. Um, we, you know, we've got some of those in our family, and I just enjoy hearing some of those conversations and them telling me about, you know, your great-grandfather, he did this, and you know, your grandfather, he farmed over, and I mean, it was just really, really neat experience, and I don't know how things are with your family, but anytime we sit down and talk about the past, there's always these interesting stories, and there's these interesting uh, people in our family. Any of, any of you guys um, have, um, you know, like one of those crazy family members? Yeah. All right, keep your hands high. Keep your hands high. Keep your hands high. Keep your hands high. All right, all right. No, no, keep them up. Keep them up. No, 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 keep them up. Keep them up. Look around at the people whose hands aren't up. They're the crazy ones in their family. They just don't know it, <laughs> right? Um, today, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at one of the most overlooked aspects, I think, at least for me it always has been, um, of the Christmas story. It's, it, you know, we, when we read the Christmas story, we always look at the shepherds and the angels, and we, we look at Mary and Joseph and the wise men. I mean, there's all these acts, aspects and angles of the Christmas story that we always take a look at. But today I want to take a look at um, one of the most overlooked, I feel like, uh, aspects of the Christmas story. And, and I think the reason it's overlooked is because we get bored with details. Like, we want the big picture. I don't know about you, but if I'm reading the Bible, there's a lot of those times, like, particularly in the Old Testament, and, and a lot, particularly if you like read the King James or maybe the New King James, I think it uses the word begat. So-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And I mean, it, it'll run off this long line of names and you're reading all those and you're like, okay, can we just skip down to where the action starts? And I think that's part of our problem. We get bored with the details and there's a lot of goodness in the details and this is what I want to look at today. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus it's the very first thing. I mean, when we look at the Christmas story and we think about the Christmas story before in the book of Matthew, before he ever gets to any of the events that happen involving the birth of Christ, he lays some context. And it was really important that he laid the context. And we're going to talk about why that was important. And we're going to read through all those names and some of those names. Some of this is probably going to be very boring to you. I've highlighted some sections that I want you to pay attention to as, as we read through it. And then we're going to talk about it. But there's a reality there's a reality of Scripture that is very important. See, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, now this is where the action begins to take place. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, um, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Right? Like, there's a... 
We, if, I don't know if you got to watch the movie last week. That was a really powerful deal that we watched last Sunday night, The Bethlehem Star. If you, if you didn't get a chance to watch it, you should rent it or buy it and watch it. It's good stuff. But it says, they came, the wise men showed up, for we saw a star when it rose. And what? We have come to worship him. Well, why are they coming to worship him just because they saw a star? Like, there were probably a lot of babies. There could have been other babies born on that night, but why that baby? Why Jesus? Now, we know the answer to that, but what led them to that? What led them to that was all that they had learned and probably been taught by scholars about the Old Testament, about the Old Testament and about all the prophecy that pointed to a coming Messiah. There would be a day that hope would be born. And Israel had waited, I mean, just generation after generation for it, which is why it's important that we take a look at the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to go straight through these, maybe taking a break here or there, but going to try to shoot straight through these. So if you would just follow along with me, and again, don't get lost in the, the chaos of it all. Don't get lost in the kind of the details. I want you to really pay attention, and again, I've highlighted some things on the screen for you that, that you should pay attention to. Here it is, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I do need to point something out here. Um, Jesus Christ is not the son of David. I mean, he wasn't like, it wasn't David was his father, right? Who is, like when we, when we read the, the, the Christmas story, it's Joseph, right? Jo and he wasn't the biological father, but he just happened to be the one that was betrothed to Mary. Jesus wasn't the son. But then it says, uh, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David was not Abraham's son either. So what is Matthew pointing to? Matthew is trying to point out that Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. That Abraham was the son of promise. David would be the lineage of a king. That he, there's really important uh, to notice that he points this out here. All right, let's get into verse two. Abraham, so now he's gonna get into the, the genealogy, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, that's important, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar is a name that's very important, we'll get to in just a minute as well. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by, here's another important name, Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, there's another important name, and Obed the father of Jesse, not Uncle Jesse from Dukes of Hazard. don't get that image in your mind, right? But Jesse, the father of David the king, there's the Davidic covenant. And David, now this is interesting, now pay attention to this, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why would Matthew not mention, why wouldn't he just say David, the father of Solomon, and mention his mother's name? Why would he say David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah? That just seems like a whole Jerry Springer scene right there, right? Back to that, we'll come back to that in a minute. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. If you're looking for a new baby name, that's a good one for you. Nobody will have it, I promise, okay? 
Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation of Babylon, that's important. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David, this is important, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, One of the things that they teach you in Bible school is when you're studying the scriptures, when you see things that are repeated, it's important. Well, what did we see that was repeated there? What we saw that was repeated there, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Now, we're going to take a look at all these and we're going to unpack this. And I think um, there's just a few things that I want to pull out for us. And I hope, again, that this will be a, a message of hope and that this whole series will be something that will help provide some hope for you. And again, if it's not a difficult season for you right now and you're not a person that's in need of hope or looking for hope, that what you will find is just some good notes that you can hang on to to stick in your phone um, and that one day you can go back and visit when you feel like you're in a place where you're in need of hope because that's what Christmas is about. It's the arrival of hope. So here's the first thing I want you to jot down. His presence is greater than my past. I think we'll put that on the screen for you. His presence is greater than my past. His presence is greater than my past. See, at this point, we have to remember, as we read through the genealogy of Jesus according to Matthew, and there are two genealogies, Matthew records one, Luke records one, At this point, we have to remember that the culture in which Matthew lived, in which Matthew was writing. Matthew was um, writing, he lived in and was writing to a very Jewish audience, which meant it was also a very patriarchal audience. Men were kind of the, the rulers of the day. They were, everything that was taught and passed down was always passed down through the genealogy of men. And today we live Uh, in an individualistic culture. I mean, we live in a culture that today is very individualistic. We always think about me, 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 and I, 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 and that's not necessarily the culture that Matthew was writing to. When Matthew was writing, he wrote to a very uh, communal audience. It was was a very family-oriented society. Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it was even more so a resume. I mean, how many of you, and you may have had some of these in... um, you may have had you know, some of these family members in your background, but some of you may have very famous or popular people in your past. And so when, uh, you, you know, when, specifically when you move here, it's really interesting. When we moved here, because I think South Georgia still has more of a family feel than like where we were at in Florida, which you know, it's kind of a melting pot of people. We move up here and people want to know, like when, you, when we moved here and we're new, they're like, okay, well, uh, tell us, who's your family? 
And it's amazing because they would say, well, who's your dad? And I would tell them who my dad is. And then, of course, they know all these things about my dad. And they go, oh, yeah, they're related to so-and-so. And I remember when they bought their first house over. And, and then they would say, well, where do you live? And then you tell them where you live. And then they could tell you who built the house that you live in and how many people have owned it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a really amazing, it's an amazing thing. And for Matthew, as Matthew's recording the genealogy of Jesus, he's really creating a resume, if you will, for who Jesus is. In those times, it was your family, it was your pedigree, it was your clan, the people that you were connected to that constituted your resume. I mean, there's some, I mean, we all know there's some powerful families in today's culture, right? I mean, if you think about it, the Bush family, pretty, pretty powerful, prominent family. I mean, if you have two presidents from the same family, that's pretty powerful, plus some other political figures. The Kennedy family would be one that we could think of. That's a, a pretty powerful family. And there's, and there's probably others. The, I mean, the Trumps might be included in that family power of power families in, in the United States of America. The Rockefellers, if you go way back to uh, early America. I mean, just there's, there's families, right? And so when, we, when you hear a name, and you begin to tie those past back. It becomes a resume for the people. It becomes a resume for the individual. So as Matthew's recording this, it becomes this genealogical resume. And it was uh, to impress, the purpose of it was to impress onlookers with the high quality and the respectability of one's roots. Particularly in, in Matthew's day of writing. Now, as you think about, again, your family history. You may have some in your past. But Matthew Here's what he does. Matthew doesn't build the resume. See, even in, even in ancient times, they would take, if, there was, if they had kind of the goofy person in their, you know, in their genealogy, they might delete it or not include it. You know, they'd be like, hey, you know, I don't, I'm not related to them at all. Maybe like some of your family does with you. I'm kidding. Right? Like you, you, have those, you have those family members in your past that you just go, yeah, we don't really want to talk about those. Like the Stevens family. I've come to find out that I am... A direct, I wouldn't say direct, maybe we're distantly related to Alexander Hamilton Stevens, who is the vice president of the Confederacy, right? So there are, there are things in our past that we look at and go, hey, you know, I don't know what kind of person he was, but I know that he was tied to some things that maybe weren't very popular, particularly in today's day and age. But Matthew does the opposite. He doesn't build up and create a, a who's who list of great names David inclu- or Matthew includes some people in the genealogy that are interesting. To begin with, did you notice that there were five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus? Again, not normal for a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience. You would typically tend to stay on the male side of the genealogy. This was a patri- patriarchal culture and women were virtually never named as part of one's pedigree. So most of the women in Jesus, also most of the women in Jesus' resume were not Jewish women, they were Gentiles. For instance, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, they were Canaanites and Moabites, not Jewish descent. To the ancient Jews, these nations were unclean. They were not, you would not want to list these in the pedigree of someone if you were a Jewish person writing again to a Jewish Jewish audience. Tamar, by the way, um, uh, Judah was the father of Perez. You saw that, and, and I, I said, pointed out to Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That was back in verse 3, if you're tracking back in your Bible. And I don't know if you know the story of what happened there, but here's what happened. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her, even though when you read all the, the scriptures in the Old Testament, you find the full story. Um, it's clear that Judah had been unjust to her as well. 
And so this was an act of incest. So when you're listing off your genealogy, you probably wouldn't want to stick that in there, Matthew. You might want to omit that. But he didn't. He included, it. He included her in the genealogy. And even though Jesus was descended from Perez and Zerah, Matthew includes both Perez and Zerah, both Judah and Tamar, to make sure that we bring the whole story and the whole picture into the Christmas story. Remember, too, Rahab, that was in verse 5. She was not just a Canaanite, but she was also, anybody know, a prostitute. But this is somebody who's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Even more interest, uh, the most interesting character and background story in the whole genealogy is found in verse 6. Because you're thinking, if you're reading through all these names and you're going, like, um, I don't know if I would have listed that Matthew. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, there is this, this uh, line that says, Jesus... Um, and in verse 6, it says that uh, there, there it says that in Jesus' line is King David. And so you got to be thinking, oh, there we go. So we're, now we're going to get to the good stuff. We're going to talk about kings. And we're going to talk about maybe perhaps one of Israel's most popular and most famous kings, David, that Jesus is a descendant of him. All right, that's a good line of thinking, Matthew. Let's stay there. But then if you think back to the Old Testament, you think back to the life of David. What is David known for? I mean, yeah, he was a man after God's own heart. But we also know that Matthew was after some other things particularly a woman named Bathsheba, that he came out on his balcony one day, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. I don't know if that's why she was named Bathsheba. Not really sure about that. Comes out and says, man, she is, that is a good looking woman. And he goes to one of his servants and says, hey, you need to go send for her to come over here. We need to have dinner. I would really like to meet her. And like, I think that's Uriah's wife. That's all good. Go ahead. Just bring her over. And so what we know is that he has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And then Bathsheba ends up pregnant, and now all of a sudden he's got a real difficulty on his hands because her, her husband is one of David's mighty men who is out fighting a battle for the nation while David's back home as the king having an affair with his wife. And so now all of a sudden David's like, well, how do I fix this? Oh, I know. Let me get Uriah to come back here. If I can get him to come back, I can get him to spend the night with his wife, and this is all covered up, and her pregnancy is, you know, kind of maybe expected. But he won't. When he comes back home, he says, nope, I'm not going to spend the night with my wife while all of my, uh, you know, my army guys are out there fighting. I'm going to sleep outside. I'm not even going to go. And so now David's got another problem. So David sets up the murder of Uriah. Hey, we're going to send him to the front lines. When, when he gets out there and he's leading the charge, everybody else pull back. This is the person that's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So here, in the genealogy of Jesus, you have moral outsiders, you have adulterous, adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, you have prostitutes, you have murderers. And we are reminded that even the prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, again, they had their moral failures. You also have cultural outsiders, racial outsiders. You have gender outsiders. The law of Moses excluded people from even having contact with these people, saying that they would be considered unclean. They couldn't even enter into the presence of God. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't participate in the worship of God. Those kind of people are the ones that Matthew, God under. Uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspires Matthew to record the genealogy of Jesus. And these are the people that he has included. It's not good that people who are in, it's, it's not the good people who are in, and it's not the bad people who are out. Everyone, 
Everyone, every one of us, we're only able to enter into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. It's because, it's because of grace. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, the worst possible person that you could dream up in your head, the most vile murderer that sits on death row, the one who you feel might be the most deserving of the punishment he's going to receive, there is not one who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, this race or another race, moral and immoral, all sits down equal in the presence of God. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus' arrival allows us to understand that. That there was a reason that he had to come because we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none good, not one. And we all stand on equal ground, equality or equally. We are equally sinful, we are equally lost, and we are equally accepted and we are equally loved. Regardless of who we are and what we've done. See, my, his presence is greater than my past. That's because hope is here. Here's the second thing that I want you to jot down. His promises, his promises are greater than my problems. His promises are greater than my problems. Here's another thing that we learn from the genealogy. It reminds us that the promises of a Messiah took generations to be fulfilled. Have you ever had to wait on something? Have you ever had to wait on your significant other when they said, I'm only going to go into Hobby Lobby for two minutes. That is the longest two minutes in eternity. Yes, sir. I'll be right back. That's what Jesus said. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I have a problem, I don't want it, like, especially if it's causing me suffering and pain, I don't want my problems fixed tomorrow. I want to fix now. Like if I have an issue, if there's some kind of, if there's something, whether it's a house issue or a car issue or whether it's a physical issue that I have, I don't want it fixed some other time. I want it fixed immediately. God made some promises to Israel and I know for Israel it had to have felt like forever. I mean, it was not just centuries, it was millennia. Jesus was the son of Abraham, as we saw earlier. God said to Abraham to, in Genesis 12, 3, he said unto all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendant. And so from Abraham, it was, if, actually you could even go back before Abraham. You could go back to the, to, um, the book of Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 15 that God himself prophesied that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus who came. That, um, and that was centuries and it was millennia until that prophecy before that angel stood before Mary and that angel stood before Joseph and told them what was going to happen before those angels stood before the shepherds and says, behold to you is born in this, to this day in the city of David. A savior. It was millennia before this happened. And the promise was a long time coming. In fact, even there was 
the Old Testament, you had the prophets who would speak to the people. And then 400 years, there was a period where there was no prophecy. There was no one prophesying. There was nothing happening. Have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to look, I don't know about you, but you know when life is hard, we tend to scour the pages of Scripture more, more um, intently looking for, okay, God, I'm going through something. You got a promise for this? Like, what is your promise? What did you say here that's going to help me get through this? Because I, I need to grab a promise from you that's going to help me endure, knowing that you're going to be faithful to fulfill your promise. We do that when we feel hopeless. We look for the promises of God in the midst of our problems. When, when we feel as if God has forgotten us, we have a tendency to question the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Maybe it's not even that we feel like he has forgotten us so much as it is that he has forgotten his promises to us. Here's what we need to know. You can't judge God on your calendar. You can't judge God on your timing. We can't judge God on our calendar and timing. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. And by the way, his timing is perfect. He may seem to be working very slowly or even seem to be forgetting his promises. But when his promises come true, and they eventually will, they always do exceedingly abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine is what we are told in the New Testament. His promises are greater than my problems. No matter how big your problems are, his promises are greater. And it reminds us that hope is here. And the last thing that I want you to jot down, the last thing that we need to grab out of the genealogy of Jesus is his rest is greater than the rest. And what I mean by that is his rest that he gives to us is greater than the rest of the reasons that we celebrate Christmas. It's greater than the rest that the world has to offer. What we learn from the genealogies is that Jesus is the ultimate rest. And I pointed out some things earlier and I want to talk about those. During the Christmas season, it seems harder like, I, don't, you, don't you feel like life gets busier at Christmas? I mean, listen, it's, it's um, well, we got to decorate the house. And then we've got to go to all these, uh, we go to family parties, we go to friends parties, we go to staff parties, we go to all these parties. Then we got to go do all this shopping and we got to go pick the perfect gift. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure, right? Sometimes to get just the perfect gift. Like, what do I get this person? And I don't even, they don't even really need anything. So how am I supposed to determine what I'm supposed to get them? And there's all this pressure and we worry, worry, worry. And we go, go, go. And we're trying to find the best deals. And where's the store that has this at the cheapest price? And then we're going to, from Valdosta to Tifton to Douglas maybe to wherever. And we're going all over the place in order to find the best deals. And we are just going non Stop and we go harder and we go faster than any other time of the year. And our pursuit of our version of Christmas puts us in this place where not only do we get, we, not only do we not get the opportunity to pause and really reflect on what the purpose of Christmas is, but it puts us in this place of exhaustion. It's almost like, man, finally, you wake up on Christmas morning, you open all the presents, there's paper everywhere, and you don't care because you're just wore out. And you're just tired, and you just want to break, and you just want to sit back and relax for once. Why? Because the build-up to Christmas has been somewhat painful. And our pursuit of Christmas, our version of Christmas, leaves us exhausted physically and emotionally 
And yet through the genealogy, Matthew is attempting to show us how Jesus' presence brings hope to us and the hope of rest. At the end of the genealogy, Matthew makes much of the numbers of the generations. Now, in Matthew 1.17, he says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. He says there were 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And there were 14 generations from the exile to Christ. So there have been six sevens of generations. And that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seven. Now, what's that all about? In the Bible, the number seven is highly significant because as Genesis tells us that God created and on the seventh day he rested. The Sabbath day, one day in seven, that you would take one day in seven and you would rest. The seventh day, the seventh, the Sabbath is one day in seven and it is a day of rest. However, the Sabbath seven symbolism goes further than that. In the Mosaic law, every seven years, the farmer was to let the land lie fallow. To give it a chance to replenish the nutrients in the ground. You were to let that land rest in the seventh year. And so the seventh year represented rest. Finally, we're told in Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, the last, that is the last year of the seventh period of seven years, which makes it the 49th year. And it was to be a jubilee. In that year, all the slaves were to be freed. All the debts were be, to be forgiven. And all, and, the, and all the land and all the people were to have a rest from their weariness and from their burdens. The seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, was a picture of the final rest that all will have when God renews the earth. You can read, that, read about that in Romans 8. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 4. And Matthew is telling us that rest will come and the rest that will come will only come through Jesus Christ. Do you, do you understand that Jesus Christ was not born in a once upon a time storyline? This isn't a fictitious fable. It's not the things that fill our TV screens this time of year. It's not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's not Santa Claus is coming to town. Like This is not a once upon a time kind of story. This is the truth. It's a genealogy. It is a testament to who Jesus was. All you need to know as we read through the genealogy and what we need to see here in this last little bit as we look in verse 17. So all the generations for Abraham, from Abraham to David were 14. From David to the deportation of Babylon were 14. From the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. There were six sevens and the seventh seven is the arrival of Jesus and it's in him that we find our rest. So his rest is greater than the rest of all of the other things that we pursue in life. It's bet whatever it is that you seek to find rest in, you will not find rest in it. You will only find rest in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, and we'll wrap up with this. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Yeah. So as we celebrate Christmas, we need to, if you'll just, I hope you jotted those three things down. 
But I hope this Christmas season, in some way, some form, some fashion, that you will find a way to find rest. That you'll remember that, that, um, that God is, that in all those areas of our life, that, that his, you know, his promises, they're greater than our problems. That his, his presence is greater than our past. And that you, this Christmas season, will understand that Jesus' arrival was about bringing rest for our souls. Rest for our hearts, rest for our minds, and ultimately rest in that we can quit working trying to find the approval and meet the necessary requirements of God to be in his presence, that Jesus came, hope is here, and now we can rest in the salvation that Jesus brings. Let's pray.